the second president of the Mormon Transhumanist Association has, what, eight children? Do you know yeah. if there's any second generation transhumanist Mormons yet? I.e. kids where this belief system has been successfully passed between generations. All of my children are Mormon transhumanists. They're all adults. Oh, wow. Wow. So it's working. Okay. Then the next thing I really want to talk to you about, because I think that this is the most interesting thing about it, is the large following in Africa. Yeah, so that's that's pretty recent. I was approached earlier this year by a guy in Senegal whose name is Kwasi Ngesen. And he was like, I really love what you guys are talking about. He went to our website and read some things and was really excited about it. And he said, I'd like to spread it to Africa. And I guess he's a pretty good community builder. So suddenly we have like almost 30 different groups that he has opened up in various African countries and is currently um, sharing some ideas with them. Would you like to know more? Hello, right. everyone. We have a very special guest here today that I am really excited and could not be more on topic for our podcast, or I think of more interest to, to a lot of our listeners who are interested in the more religious stuff. But we have with us today the co-founders of the transhumanist Mormon branch of Mormonism, or I'd say movement. I don't like to say movement because I think it's a bit more than that. And I'd really love you guys to introduce yourself. And I'd love to start just by talking about what it is as a concept and how you see it as contiguous with the traditional Mormon tradition. Awesome. I guess I'll start. My name's Carl Youngblood. I'm the current president of the Mormon Transhumanist Association. And I'm one of the co-founders of the association, but, and Lincoln is as well, but there are several others. So I feel I need to give credit to the whole group. There was, I think, what was it, Lincoln, like 14 yep. people or so who wow. co-founded the association. And I do want to clarify that several of us are active Latter-day Saints. We consider ourselves to be kind of in the mainstream church as well, although it's not required to be a member of the LDS church to be a member of the association. So we have um, several active members. We have some who are not active in the church. That's a term we use for like whether you are a practicing member, I should say. Um, sometimes we use this lingo inside Mormonism that is a little bit confusing. So, um, so yeah, it, there are practicing Latter-day Saints in, um, in our midst, in the association, there are others who are not practicing and others who've never even been Latter-day Saints, but just found a lot of interesting things to talk about in the group and, and kind of gravitated towards us for various reasons. And I'll let Lincoln talk a little bit more about it as well. Go ahead, Lincoln. Sure. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, my, my name's Lincoln Cannon. Like Carl said, I'm one of the co-founders of the association. And I served as the association's president for 10 years uh, from its inception until 2016. As Carl pointed out, the, you know, there isn't any necessary strong distinction between a Mormon transhumanist and a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm yeah, I've, I've, I've been mentioning that I've been figuring that out as I've been talking to more Mormons where a lot of the beliefs that I see are very transhumanist sounding to me. So it seems like a very natural evolution if it is such a natural evolution, why make the distinction at all? Yeah. So, and, and a valuable part of that is that by making some things explicit, you emphasize mm -hmm. them, you bring them to mind, and you ensure their continuing 
maybe virility or via even viability within the culture. And that's one of the things that we cared a lot about is that we wanted to call attention to aspects, genuine aspects of Mormon culture and theology that we felt were very important, are very important, and that merit more attention than perhaps the average Mormon gives them. And mm. so, you know, by, by, by organizing a movement around this, we call attention to those things, we emphasize those things, and as a consequence, we cultivate those things within the culture. So can you elaborate or highlight some of the things that you guys would be focusing more on in your framing than a traditional Mormon community would? Yeah, I'll go, I'll share a few things and Lincoln can add to this. I think one thing that is very important to us is this notion that there is no distinction between spirit and matter in Mormon theology. So Ooh. for example, from a philosophical point of view, the term for this would be called substance monism, but it's this idea that, you know, the dualists in classical philosophy would say that there is such a thing as spirit and such a thing as matter, and they are two separate substances and they will never meet. And typically they would say that spirit was of a higher order. It was some kind something metaphysical and that everything physical was an approximation of a better reality that was in the, in the realm of the spirit, Mormonism eradicates that difference and basically says that all things are spirit and all things are matter, essentially, like that they're all part of the same substance. So if there is such a thing as a spiritual phenomenon that is happening, Mormons, um, Mormon theology would, would say that that must be observable, comprehensible, measurable in some way, or it's not real. So, so I'd love to, oh, continue. Yeah. Well, really fast, I would just say that would mean that anything that appears to be miraculous would still have some explanation, even if we don't fully understand it yet. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw a distinction on this point. Are you describing something closer to like an Orson Pratt perception of spirit, where spirit can be thought of in like spirit particles, basically, that could maybe one day be studied, but are still a distinct thing from the like like what we think of as the material human body or is it more the way simone and i think of it where we think of as the spirit is more like a metaphor for just your genetics and the patterns that are existing within your brain yeah so it's interesting it sounds like i mean i, I i'm happy about the fact that you've apparently researched some things um, <laughs> there was this period of controversy where brigham young and orson pratt were arguing over like what the nature of these this spirit is, right? Yeah. And I would say that without getting too dogmatic on any particular way of conceiving it, I think we're more focused on sort of the pragmatic aspects of how spirit, spiritual phenomena may be manifest in the world. And so we probably gravitate more towards the approach that you and Simone are taking in this regard, but I, yeah. I guess I have to tease that out a little more. Lincoln, is there anything you want to add there? Or? Yeah, I, I think that two very useful approximations of spirit in sexual in secular language mm -hmm. would be aesthetics and information. Mm. And so those both harmonize well with the kind of accounts that you were talking about. And those accounts of spirit also work very well with Mormon scripture. Mormon scripture intentionally equivocates between light and spirit and truth 
and and as a consequence of that you read scriptures where you can understand light and spirit and truth to be interchangeable and once you've done that it's not a it's not a big leap to thinking you're talking about something like information and aesthetics yeah well this like our perspective on this just in case listeners are, are wondering is spirit can best be thought of as an emergent phenomenon that it comes from specific types of complex patterns so yeah. so what's what is interesting about the framing that we would use for spirit it, it would intrinsically mean that higher order types of spirits can come to exist than potentially exist today through the endeavors of human work which sounds somewhat similar to i don't know your guys beliefs on things or yeah i mean what you've described really resonates strongly with me that there are emergent properties both in the the human body itself, you think about how we evolved from lo lower life forms that eventually exhibited a sufficient degree of complexity to where emergent phenomena like the ability to think and to express yourself in words and to do amazing feats. And when you look at human organizations at a at a macroscopic level or imagine them that way, you can you can start to see even more interesting sociological phenomena occur and we have as well you know the christian pauline metaphor of the body of christ where um, he described the you know all of the members of Christ's church as a kind of single body that if you could look at it from far away would each have appendages and and members and organs and and each person is doing something useful we may not be sure what it is like Maybe I'm the spleen and no one can see what my purpose is other than to sit there and be annoying. But, you know, there's probably some version, something that each person is contributing, hopefully, that is benefiting the whole, right? So, yeah. Just for listeners who may not be familiar with the concept of emergent properties, because it's something that people who talk in this space would be very familiar with, you can think of it as like you broadly understand how like H2O molecules look kind of, how they interact with each other, but that them interacting in mass leads to the concept that we know of as wetness is you don't think that there's some extra spiritual thing that's added to the water to make the wetness appear. You just understand that this very different phenomenon seems to emerge when these specific things are interacting in a way that individually you can understand and you can understand why they might lead to something that at a higher order looks like wetness. But the actual moment it turns from water molecules interacting to wetness is something that our brains just are not structured to understand or to grasp. You could almost say that like you need to have some level of abstraction to even comprehend wetness, right? It's like if you had to think about the individual movements of every single H2O molecule, yeah. you would get lost in the shuffle. Right? You wouldn't be able to, to observe the emergent property, right? Well I really want to focus uh, or talk a bit about this argument that you sent me that Lincoln came up with. Lincoln, I'd love it if you could present it. I, I forget the name of it, but it's very similar to arguments that we have laid out with like, I think minor aesthetic differences that highlight the difference between our communities. And I think a really fun way that people might be surprised about the things we disagree on. So I'd love to hear this argument presented for our audience. Sure. I think you're referring to the new God argument, right? Yes. Yeah, I can, I can give you a nutshell version of that with the caveat that there's a great deal of 
potential complexity to understanding it. And sometimes the nutshell version gives people just enough to misunderstand it, but I, I'm more than willing to share it anyway. So the, the new God argument is an argument not to prove the existence of God, but to prove that we should trust in or have active practical faith in that which may constitute God given certain understandings of God. So there, there's a little bit of complexity there. It's not an argument about platonic philosophy versions of the good or of the theologies that descend from platonic philosophy. It's, it's a much more practical argument than that. It's about an argument on behalf of trust in a God that is the kind of God that could arise within nature, a natural God. And, and it begins with purely secular assumptions and it uses those secular assumptions to reach conclusions that sound and operate very much like the conclusions of theism. And so for theists who are not attached to anti-naturalist metaphysics, this argument is quite compelling. And for people maybe who aren't even theists, but who are open-minded enough to deeply consider the argument, it can be transformative of their uh, theological identity. It, it was that way for me. I was an atheist for nearly a decade. The argument begins with the assumption, the secular assumption, that humanity will become superhumanity. And it's mm -hmm. an assumption. And we, we make this assumption and we say, hey, this is something that we ought to trust in for practical reasons, for pragmatic reasons. If we don't trust in this possibility, we under, undermine our own efforts to get there. It also kind of entails that superhumanity has dignity that it's something worth pursuing, something that we can pursue, something that we should pursue, something that we want to pursue. So all of those are kind of bundled together in the assumption. And we call that the faith assumption, the assumption that humanity will become superhumanity. Then there are two arguments that are built on top of that assumption. One of the arguments is called the compassion argument and the other is called the creation argument. Both of those arguments introduce two more assumptions each and they use that first assumption, the faith assumption, to reach conclusions about the nature of superhumanity, what superhumanity is probably like if we make those assumptions. The compassion argument makes two assumptions, as I said. One of those assumptions is a description of the possibility space for superhumanity. And the possibility sp space of superhumanity is A, superhumanity won't happen. We will not become superhumanity. That's the first possibility, right? We'll become extinct. We'll destroy ourselves or whatever. The second possibility is that superhumanity will not have more decentralized power than humanity. Maybe it will, maybe we will evolve into some kind of singleton where we don't have any kind of decentralized agency. We're just all part of the Borg. Uh, the third possibility of the possibility space is that superhumanity has more decentralized power than humanity. So that's the first assumption is this describing the possibility space. The second assumption of the compassion argument is that superhumanity will have more decentralized power than humanity. Again, this is an assumption. It might not prove true, but there's again, practical reasons why we would probably want it to be true. Unless you are a big fan of living or you, you wouldn't be living anymore. If you're a big fan of being assimilated into the Borg, then you have reason to not want to be uh, part of a singleton. Mm -hmm. So if we, make the, that, if, if we make that assumption that humanity, superhumanity will have more decentralized power 
and we maintain the faith assumption that humanity will become superhumanity, then that negates two of the three parts of the possibility space, leaving only one. And that third part of the possibility space is that humanity will have more decentralized power, or excuse me, superhumanity will have more decentralized power than humanity has. And then we look at some of the ramifications of that. One of the ramifications of that is that decentralized power is a very predictable quality for cooperation. Where there's more decentralized power, there's more cooperation. In a previous dis email discussion with Malcolm, Malcolm brought up the truth that this only works for in-groups, those that have the power. And he's totally right. And that's the point of the argument. The point of the argument is, is that as we decentralize power, we become predictable to those who have power. And so by decentralizing power more to more agents, we become predictable to more agents and therefore more likely to be cooperative with more agents. And then kind of the final part of the reasoning here is that decentralized power pressed to its limits requires decentralized cooperation pressed to its limits, which becomes practically indistinguishable from compassion for all practical purposes. So superhumanity, given those assumptions, those two assumptions we made, would be more compassionate than humanity. So that's the, that's the compassion argument. Then the simulation, or, or excuse me, the, the creation argument, which depends in part on the simulation argument, is very similar. First, it lays out a possibility space. The possibility space is that A will become extinct before becoming superhumanity. That's a possibility. Or B, superhumanity will either choose not to or not have the ability to run many emulations of its evolutionary history. Or C, we're almost certainly living in one of those emulations of the evolutionary history of superhumanity. And the reasoning for this goes um, back to the simulation argument. It's an argument that's most um, well-known for having been formulated by um, Nick Bostrom, but the argument's actually older than his formulation. He just did a very good job of expressing it. And that argument is basically that either, either superhumanity will, you know, isn't, will never become superhumanity, or for whatever reason, they won't run a simulation. Or if they do run a significant number of simulations of their ancestral history, then we're almost certainly living in one of those ourselves just for reasons of probabilities, statistics. As it turns out, the simulation argument can be generalized. It doesn't depend on simulation technology. It works just as well. The math works just as reliably for any creative mechanism that we think may be feasible. Maybe it's cosmoforming. Maybe it's terraforming. Maybe it's computing of some other nature than what we might think of as simulation. It doesn't matter. The same logic, the same mathematics hold out. And so the, the creation argument first of all, uses the faith assumption and, and negates one aspect of the possibility space. No, we're not going to go extinct because we assumed that away. It also makes the assumption that superhumanity will have the ability and interest in running emulations, whether they're simulations or cosmoforming or terraforming or what, emulations of their evolutionary history. And the logical probabilistic consequence of that, we're almost certainly living in one of those emulations ourselves. So then the argument concludes by combining the conclusions of the compassion and the creation arguments and says that superhumanity probably would be more compassionate than us. Again, this is a probabilistic argument. And from the creation argument, superhumanity probably created our world. And those two conclusions when combined sound very much like God as understood by traditional theology, so long as you're willing to accept 
a natural version of God, which a some people will not like on God, metaphysical right. grounds. A, a progressing God, right? Who emerged from simpler forms. Yeah. yeah, and fortunately for Mormon theology, that's exactly what God is in Mormon theology, right? God does not start as God in Mormon theology. God becomes well, God. So one thing I'm really curious about is like, I mean, the movement's been around for a while. And in like you say, like it's not that distinguished from like mainstream LDS. But I think views. listeners to the show can also see why it has so many similarities to our belief system. V yeah. Very, very, very many similarities. To our but belief are there system. any like sort of day to day or month to month or year to year differences in the lifestyle or practices of a transhumanist Mormon versus a mainstream normal, not considering themselves transhumanist Mormon? I guess it, that would probably vary from individual to individual, but I certainly think that, think that some of the things that are on our radar because of the particular interests of our group tend to cause certain values to bubble up. So for example, some of us are engaged in things like intermittent fasting, mm. other things around health. We're a little more keyed into some of the new discoveries around health and longevity and trying to do our best to to improve our health a little bit and be a little more mindful of some things that maybe an average Latter-day Saint might not be as concerned about. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah. two so things like basically, I'd love to get into. Would, it, would it be accurate to say like broader, just more technophilia in general? Oh yeah. Yeah. I think so. Like there's more tech nerds among us than probably in the average, you know, LDS cohort or whatever. So I'd love to get an idea. What's the fertility rate like in this community? Mm. And what's the geographic distribution of the, the community? Mm. The second president of the Mormon Transhumanist Association has what, eight children? Is that right, Carl? Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Woo! Um, nice. In fact, Chris, Chris is a really interesting figure. I hope he'll forgive us for speaking on his behalf while he's not here. But he calls himself a liberal fundamentalist. <laughs> And he uh, just kind of like jokingly about how he has certain qualities that you might think of as fundamentalist, but he's also kind of progressive in other ways. Mm. And he often had said, he claims that like, if, if progressive people with progressive politics really cared about propagating their ideas and sharing them more broadly, that they would have more children. Right. <laughs> and so I, I've always thought that was kind of interesting. You know, and then Carl, you have like four. Where... I agree. I, I hope that he keeps some aspect of the progressive movement alive. Like, I do not think the progressive movement is bad. And one of the things that we bemoan the most on this show is that it's one of the movements that, unless some people like him are able to find ways to intergenerationally preserve it, that's going to most quickly go extinct. Yeah, and I should clarify that I think Chris is fairly nuanced in his politics, so he he's not your typical sort of leftist or whatever, but... Mm. I think it's more just that, I don't know, I often say that I think that a, a Christian should actually have qualities that appear on both the right and the left and some that yeah. appear on neither side as well. And so, well, if uh, you're on either, either side, especially considering how oddly scattershot and like in many cases, non-thematic, the ideological clusterings are politically in the United States, like there's a lot of stuff that's conservative and it's like, this doesn't, why is this a conservative thing and vice versa? If you show more tendency toward that than your religion, then it's just showing that you are like basically adhering to a false God. So right. I think you're totally right. You need to follow your religion's principles, not those of a particular ideological team, especially considering how logically inconsistent our ideological teams are now. 
Do you know yeah. if there's any second generation transhumanist Mormons yet? I.e. kids where this belief system has been successfully passed between generations. All of my children are Mormon transhumanists. They're all adults. Oh, wow. Wow. So it's working. Okay. Then the next thing I really want to talk to you about, because I think that this is the most interesting thing about it, is the large following in Africa. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty recent. Um, uh, I was approached earlier this year by a guy in Senegal whose name is Kwasi Ngesen. And he was like, I really love what you guys are talking about. He went to our website and read some things and was really excited about it. And he said, I'd like to spread it to Africa. And I guess he's a pretty good community builder. So suddenly we have like almost 30 different groups that he has opened up in various African countries and is currently um, sharing some ideas with them. I would say that they're, it's still very nascent over there. They're still um, even figuring out what it is that Mormon transhumanism is and asking us a lot of questions about some of our beliefs. And, you know, it's been interesting also to see the reception amongst uh, different groups where some of them are like, what are you talking about? Are these guys even Latter-day Saints? Like, you know, they're just a little bit um, surprised at first, but I think as they learn more about it and as we've been having monthly meetups, virtual monthly meetups with them, they're starting to see, oh yeah, you guys sound familiar. You know, the things you're saying aren't too out there for us, you know, so. What's well, funny, like to an outsider, just how close that is to the Matt Stone and Trey Parker Broadway play, The Book of Mormon, that like oh, yeah. somehow like in Africa, now you have all these people who are like talking like about high tech, like basically Star Wars and stuff. And it's like, wait, what? Wait, wait, wait. Like yeah. well, Matt Stone and Trey Parker need to know about you know, and the emphasis is different. Uh, my emphasis is different for Africans. Like one of the things that I have been strongly encouraging the African chapters of our association about is to gain as much education as possible. Like that is a principle that Latter-day Saints firmly believe in that's been affirmed by several of our leaders in general conference, but it's something that is now on um, reach of a lot of Africans because the church just recently started a program, the, a remote education program that will hopefully extend the blessings of a strong liberal education to, to the whole world. Whereas up to now, it's been largely available to those who live near one of the actual universities of the church, but not, it's a little harder to get to in some of these developing nations, right? Something I wanted to pull on here, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in this sort of understanding of what's going on with the African movement, but that they are culturally a little different from the branch that's in the U.S. And that in the U.S., it seems almost sort of ancillary to the core theology of the movement. The movement is slightly more progressive in its social ideology, where the African movement is more conservative in its social ideology. Is I that an accurate understanding? Yeah, I think that's fair. What we've observed is that certain hot button social issues like queer issues and other things like that don't, don't have a good reception in the global South, generally mm. speaking. And over time, I've come to the conclusion that a few, the church generally, I mean, this isn't like, I'm not dictating what the church should do in these areas, but I, I personally feel that some of the things that the church in the developed world, some of the issues that are causing people some turmoil and challenge 
are like like the prescription for the developed world is almost like the precise opposite of what it might be in the global south because for example if we start liberating certain concepts and and doctrines and teachings and practices to accommodate these social issues in the in the US that might alienate members in the global south who where where these issues where they they have a much more conservative stance on a lot of these issues mm. and and right now the church is growing tremendously in the global south and not as quickly in um in the developed world and so i mean in fact you know all everything that we've seen so far in like various surveys shows that it's actually shrinking somewhat in the developed world and so mm -hmm. um, so i'm personally feeling like any church including ours that wants to wants to continue adapting to to change as it's happening should probably decentralize more in its governance model in order to allow each of these cultures to independently come to terms with and figure out how to deal with certain issues. Not to be too crude about it, but like um, it's not uncommon to hear that, for example, in Africa, there's still a lot of gender disparity, like like that sometimes, you know, there's some sh kind of chauvinism that requires women to walk behind men and to not not be treated as equals. And um, I'm not I'm I don't personally like that that attitude, I don't agree with it, but I feel like a culture needs to work through those issues at their own pace and not have it imposed externally on them because they tend to rebel when you do that. And mm -hmm. I think you would have a, a poorer hearing in these other countries if you came down really strongly on a certain stance on this. And so it's almost better, in my opinion, to let individual areas govern themselves to some degree so that they can deal with these issues in a way that is uh, is best suited for their culture. And Sounds um, like an argument against the problem of evil. Yes. So yeah. also, so my understanding, because we talked about how many churches there were or how many like groups there were in, in Africa right now, it, there's like a thousand members, thousands of members. I, I would say that right now what we've, been able to see with the groups that have formed in Africa, this is just chapters of our association now. It's important to clarify that we're not a church. We're, you know, like we're just an association of church members and other people interested in Mormon transhumanism. But what I've seen so far is that they, some of the largest groups claim about a hundred members and, and it goes down from there. But so, so I'd say at our most optimistic estimates, it maybe be like 500 Africans are somewhat aware of the MTA and 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 coming. But so would this make the African branch of the transhumanist Mormons larger than the American branch? No. So the number of registered members of the MTA so far is a is just over a thousand. In the and, United, well, in the developed world, not mm -hmm. counting Africa. And, and and I mean to clarify, that thousand number, that thousand count, even has some members of developed or sorry developing nations as well it's just that prior to this one individual be, who was a good community builder like going gung-ho about it um it our membership was just over a thousand members these members that are joining in africa a lot of them it's like just logistically getting to the point where we can accept donations and help them fund their local chapters is taking a lot of time so we're just in the process of registering in ghana and from there, that will allow us to open a 
bank account, which is, allows us to receive um, donations from these various countries and disperse funds to each country. And the goal here is mostly just to allow them to be self-sufficient. We, mm. We're basically letting each of them um, collect membership dues and then use those to hold meetups and do whatever kind of authorized activities they would have. And so because that's only getting off the ground now and we're still in the process of registration, we don't have a whole lot of like hard, fast numbers and things of, of who's who and how much how much activity is actually occurring. So it's somewhat preliminary right now, basically. And I like your argument about decentralization. And I, I mean, when you look at there, there aren't actually that many examples of religions that have with high-ish levels of fidelity and central management managed to spread a lot. But like when you look at Catholicism, there was a lot of decentralization and there was a lot of like local customization and like adoption of local demigods and all this kind of stuff. So totally agree with you on that. Like, and, and you need that innovation mm -hmm. in a way that even you maybe the like main legacy primary church governing body would integrate the stuff that does work that they might want to spread to other areas. So I, yeah, so it makes yeah. a lot of sense. And do you have social technologies that are unique to members of your movement? For example, any like singles wards or anything like that, that are unique to the transhumanist Mormon movement or because I mean, when we look intergenerationally, it seems like one of the hardest things that a lot of people are having trouble with right now is finding partners. And I'm wondering, is this something that you guys do any work on or just use the existing LDS operations? Lincoln, you want to take some time and talk about maybe some of this discussion of a possible transfigurist order? Mm. Sure. Yeah, I can talk about that. A direct answer to your question is that historically we, we've not done more than what the church itself offers, which is considerable. The church has a lot. awards all over yeah. the place. Yeah. But that doesn't entirely facilitate the needs of Mormon transhumanists because Mormon transhumanists do tend to have some relatively unique emphases and they look for people with whom those resonate, of course. And so that would be something that we'd like to help with. So that brings, brings us to the, what Carl was just mentioning. We have for a long time discussed organizing a more formal religious order. We call it a religious order because we want people to understand that it's not a church. It's not a competition with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or any other Mormon church or any other church in the world for that matter. Right. What we want it to be is a, is a friendship that strengthens its members in their faith, in their spirituality, in their aspirations, in their well-being and, and toward what they would like to become, and does so using the principles of Mormon transhumanism in a, in a more strenuous way, in a more vigorous way, in a way that holds people, that, a way in which we hold each other to higher standards hmm. because we want to be held to higher standards. So just a, a question here for clarification, would this be closer to the Catholic orders or would this be closer to something like the Freemasons where it was the Catholic orders, it's sort of a sub branch of the Catholic church and with the Freemasons, it's more of something that anyone can join, whatever their faith is, as long as they hold some, a few central tenets. This it would probably be more like the Freemasons, particularly because the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has a very positive history with the Freemasonry. Many of its original leaders were Freemasons. There continue to be members of the church today that are Freemasons, and the church does not have problems with that. 
So because because of the history of the church in that direction, I suspect it would be a little bit more like that. Although we do sometimes appeal to the tradition within Catholicism to show how it can operate very synergistically with the church itself. But that's up to the church to decide. We 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 have we're, we're not planning to pressure the church in any way, either its leaders or its members. The ma majority of us are members of the church. We want we want to be in good standing and we are in good standing. We don't want that to change. And so what this is, is to help people in ways that are useful for us as Mormon transhumanists because of our unique emphases. And to what extent do you talk a lot with or interact with the like main body of the Church of Latter-day Saints? And and also, do they know about you? What do you know what they think about you? Like both like to your face and not so, to your so face? I'm very curious. Just as an outsider, when I have been doing a lot of research on Mormonism recently, yeah. they often come up as one of what people think of who are like Mormon theological people as one mm. of the primary branches of Mormonism right now. Oh, so these are like other people who aren't connected to their movement. They're like, there are these four broad frameworks of Mormonism that are practiced and Mormon transhumanism is often one that comes up. Anything you'd like to add to that, guys? Yeah, I mean, everybody who knows me well knows that I'm a Mormon transhumanist. And historically, that has very rarely caused problems. There have been people that have been suspicious of that. And those tend to be other members of the church who may actually be unusually conservative as members of the church go, hmm. maybe a little bit more like conservative Christianity in the Southeastern United States than like your average Mormon in Utah. Okay. The, the most typical response when people find out about Mormon transhumanism is kind of like a cautious interest. They're like, oh, that's interesting. Tell me about it. Yeah. Um, and then occasionally, more often than, more often than the negative extreme is actually the positive extreme where they go, oh, wow, that's like, I've always looked at things that way. Maybe I'm a Mormon transhumanist. Right, yeah. I, yeah. I just want to add one other thing, which is that we often find discussions of transhumanism itself a little bit too binary for our taste in the sense that like, well, for example, just the other day, I was, I, I tried to read broadly from a lot of different um, religious publications and mm -hmm. other publications as well. Mm -hmm. And in conservative religious publications, transhumanism is regularly pilloried as a kind of freakish attempt to abandon humanity and to upload ourselves oh. into a computer and like abandon oh. embodiment altogether, right? I see, yeah. Whereas most of us think of our bodies as like really important and that any experience, any augmentation of our embodiment would need to be an improvement on what we're experiencing now, not some sort of like devolution into something that was even worse, right? Yeah. And and so this idea that transhumanists wish to transcend entirely mm -hmm. human nature is, I think, often it's often a caricature of what many more serious transhumanists I know are interested in, and. And but but in defense of those who are using it this way, some transhumanist advocates haven't done a good job of explaining what it is that they're after. And some of them have a very naive idea that they could simply upload themselves into a computer and it would be better. And like so in that sense, I think a lot of people have had these sort of naive conceptions of transhumanism that don't really do it full justice. And we find ourselves in this weird 
limbo or, or, or luminal space where it's like, or, or liminal, I guess is the right word, where it's like, we don't quite fit in with either the secular transhumanist crowd fully or the um, sort of religious crowd either. And we're trying to help both sides see what they could, how they could benefit from some dialogue, I guess. Well, and I actually, would, I, oh, continue. I, I have a question. I'm dying now to hear this. Cause you know, when we talk about like a lot, a lot of the, like, we'll say secular tech groups that we interact with fairly closely, we found there's this growing divide. On one side, there are the technophilic pronatalists. And on the other side, there are the technophilic life extensionists. Hmm. And I'm hearing undertones here of interest in life extension, you know, interest in like, you know, overcoming or improving upon the human body. But you you also pointed out that like, it seems that this, this subset of the LDS church has a pretty good birth rate, which is, is meaningful. And, you know, Malcolm and I've yet actually to encounter any group that has been both pro-life extension and pro-having a lot of kids. Now you have. Um, yeah. So, where where are you guys like yeah, where so is in, like in mormon oh. theology the the purpose of god is to bring about the immortality and eternal life of humanity so the purpose of god is to have children and to then exalt them glorify them uh -huh. in intelligence and power and compassion and courage and creativity into godhood in which state they live in immortality with God, they become gods themselves. So yeah. in Mormon theology, both are required. One is to extend life and extend robust embodiment and intelligence. And the mm -hmm. other is to give that gift to others and to share in friendship with them. So we see no conflict between those two imperatives, right? It's well, like, well, why not well. pursue both? <laughs> Well, I would love it if we could, when you guys, if you guys end up starting this order, I would love to do another episode with you guys to redraw our listeners' attention to what you guys are doing. Because I think that among our listener base and our fan base, you'd find a lot of people who might be outside of the Mormon tradition who could be interested in something like that. And I think the world would be a better place for something like that. And I also think an interesting thing from our followers' perspective is if they're familiar with our beliefs, what they might be surprised about, or you guys might not, not see it this way, but we would actually come off as a much more conservative and, and, and almost sort of ruthless iteration of your belief system, whereas <laughs> you guys would come off as the nice, cozy iteration of this belief system. That would fit well with Mormons' stereotypes of like being polite people, you know. Who, <laughs> the nice ones. Who yeah. like, even when you insult them are like big smile, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. So Yeah, for yeah. example, the debate we were having over emails, we we're like, oh yeah, we believe a lot of what you guys are saying, but not that God is a compassionate God. We don't <laughs> we don't think he's a compassionate God at all. And we, we think that death is a good thing. Like we're anti-life extension. So we come across, I think it's much more Old testament -y, but I love this distinction and this transformation, I think, that we're seeing. And what really heartens me is that you guys do do something different than us. One of the things that we're always pushing for is we want as many different types of intergenerational high fidelity, high fertility communities to exist because it is through our differences that we are able to see things in different ways and able to, as a society, come to better long-term conclusions and solution to things. And it looks like you guys have created the seed of something that really can be one of these intergenerational movements that is going to be a world player in, you know, 500 years. 
And I, I find it very rich. And I actually think even likely from the trends we're seeing now that it is the African fraction that ends up being the, the primary faction. And, and we talk about this a lot on the show is that in Africa, there's a lot of cultural experimentation undergoing much more difficult cultural evolutionary pressures right now because it's a much more difficult environment. And so we are likely to see some of the cultures that end up becoming the dominant cultures in the world, you know, 500 years from now are going to be coming out of what right now is is sort of a, a skunk works and trial by fire of of many different new traditions. And it's really cool to meet people who might be playing major, might have been major founding members of all of that. Malcolm, yeah. I, I really like what you're saying there. And I want to point out that in Mormon eschatology, heaven is not uh, monolithic. In Mormon eschatology, there are heavens and worlds without end of different kinds and degrees. And not everybody is supposed to all go to the same heaven. We're supposed to go to the heaven that's consistent with our desires mm. and our works. And so when you say that you want to live in a world where we're not all the same, but where we can kind of feed off of each other in a virtuous cycle, that's required for Mormon theology to hold out. Oh, that's and wild. so we very definitely wish the same. Yeah. Well, it's funny, an episode that's about to come out, it hasn't come out yet, is we talk about a concept that we've been playing with recently, which is the metaphor of a tesseract as uh, for God. And what we're pointing out with the metaphor of a tesseract for God is a lot of people, they try to overlap traditions to get a truer idea of God. This is like if you had a cube rotating in three-dimensional space and you were looking at its shadow and you tried to overlap the, the, the parts of the shadow that were consistent to get an understanding of what the cube actually looked like because you can't understand three-dimensional space. Somebody looking at two-dimensional space, you'd say, oh, it's a sphere. That's the real shape. But you're actually wrong. You would have been better off saying it's real shape with any one of the shadow formations that it had created. And it's the same with God where we think that following any one tradition to its fullest gets you to a closer and potentially holistically true vision of God than trying to mix and match traditions. And it is this view that allows us to say people of like ultra-Orthodox Jews have a whole and complete revelation of God to the extent that we as humans can understand God in the same way that any one three-dimensional shadow of a tesseract is the whole and complete revelation of that tesseract to people who are living in a three-dimensional plane. That, Interesting. That I, I guess I would agree with that. And insofar as we don't suppose that it logically entails that all religious cultures or ideologies are therefore equal. I don't think that that is a necessary oh, conclusion yeah. from that reasoning. It reminds no, me a lot that. of the the old parable that they always talk about, like of how, you know, different people are feeling parts of an elephant and describing mm. what they're feeling. And they, this analogy is often used to describe the differences that exist in religions today. But if it's all right with you guys, I was curious. You, I think you'll find that both of us and several other members of the MTA are very, very polite and sort of like, friendly interlocutors in the sense that we are not easily offended. And so, uh, but, you know, by disagreement or, or even when people try to make us mad, but like, I would love to see Lincoln and Malcolm engage a little more on the topic of compassion and why, why Malcolm, you 
are not persuaded by Lincoln's argument from decentralization towards compassion. Yeah, so I'll give an example of, of the, the gist of the argument that I put, and then I can hear a better position of his full argument, which is I do agree that cooperation works when you have a community of equals and no outsiders to that community, but cooperation starts to break down as a model when you have outsiders, like competing groups, or when you have members in a group that are a vastly different or asymmetric intelligence. For example, a super intelligent AI among humans, or like two really, two like, you know, two humans that would be considered of like uh, average intelligence among a community of like 20 people who have serious mental situation. I don't know the PC way to say this. Impairment. Um, you want like a democracy in that. Oh, you you naturally the people who were of higher cognitive processing would end up influencing much more what's happening. And so I think that when we have a world of so that's that's one side of the argument is I just don't think that where we're going is a world in which all groups are are equal and and that that necessarily leads to cooperation in that chain. Uh, but also, I don't think when I look around the world today that I see evidence that this world was created by a being that had compassion in the way we as humans understand compassion. I think it has a goal, and I think that goal is more important than compassion or any of the lower order things that we humans concern ourselves with because we have emotions, and so we think from the perspective of an entity that has emotions. But this often influences the way that we see things. So we come from a Calvinist tradition, and as we often mention on our podcast, we see both an indulgence in positive emotional states and negative emotional states as equally sinful. So an overindulgence in happiness or anything like that, insofar as it affects your efficacy, is a sin. And, and this is a reflection of the way that we see God, is that God is just not concerned with, you know, the, the bonfire of human vanity. So Malcolm, I completely agree with everything you said. And I think that if you had been supposing that those were disagreements with my positions, then I didn't communicate my positions to you in a way that was understandable to you. On the first point, regarding cooperation only applying to an in-group, that's exactly the point. And therefore, the reason to expand that group, to decentralize as a moral imperative. The greater, the and decentralization is not decentralization in word, because as you pointed out, that doesn't actually work. It has to be decentralization in actual power. And therefore, the necessity of not just giving people a vote, but actually enhancing their capacities. So anyway, I, I completely agree with your point on, on decentralization. You're, I, so far as I'm concerned, you're perfectly correct. And it's perfectly consistent with the compassion argument. The second point about the kind of world we live in, I also agree with. And that is that if we define compassion in terms of suffering mitigation, then clearly God is not compassionate. This world is abundant <laughs> proof to the contrary. Yeah, But I don't define compassion in terms of suffering mitigation, nor do I think the scriptures. I think the scriptures define compassion in terms of thriving op optimization. Hmm. And that is very often a difficult thing that's consistent with, as, point, as, as is pointed out by Paul in the New Testament, with suffering. In fact, according to Paul, if we want to become joint heirs in the glory of God with Christ, then we must suffer with him.
Right. Interesting. So I guess I guess my my counter would be I'd love to understand like the capacity. I agree that compassion could be like if there was a a deity that allowed all humans to improve themselves in at least a somewhat apparative way. I can then see that as uh, a compassionate God from this definition, from like the improvement definition. However, um, a lot of humans, I feel, do not get the capacity to improve themselves. They're born into situations where that was never an option for them before their lives were cruelly and painfully snuffed out. And so I think that the way I could get to a definition of compassion here is to say that God is allowing our species to intergenerationally improve, but doesn't particularly care for any individual, which which then, yeah, I totally agree with you if that's something that we're aligned on. Yeah, maybe it's I about a definition of compassion. You. Is that what the difference is here? Sorry, could you repeat what you just said there, Simone? Is this about a differing definition of compassion? Like if oh. compassion is about the opportunity of like humanity on the whole to achieve great things and become better, then we would probably agree that God is extremely compassionate and that humanity has been given ample opportunity and has been able to thrive and flourish and grow. However, on an individual level, no. And I guess we see compassion as like stopping individual suffering. So is this a definitional problem? Yes, it is a definitional problem. And I almost agree with what you're saying about God being compassionate towards the species where I'll disagree with you. And that I think is exactly right. God is compassionate towards humanity and the potential of humanity. But where I would disagree with you is the conclusion that, to speak coarsely, individuals be damned. Mm. And that is because I trust that while of necessity, God must relinquish power in order for us to have the opportunity to truly thrive, and relinquishing power requires serious risk and requires the fallout that we see all over the world. That doesn't mean that the story must end at death. From a Mormon perspective, the story doesn't end there. Mm. The story is one of eternal progression and individuals who may not have had a full opportunity in this life will, from a Mormon perspective, eventually, and I don't know exactly how, but my trust is, and that, and that I ought to contribute in making this the possibility that they eventually yeah. will have that opportunity to participate in the thriving according yeah. to their desires and works. It's, it's interesting that for our perspective, it's not that we don't think that God doesn't care about any humans, but we believe, you know, again, coming from a Calvinist tradition and the concept of the elect, God cares about some humans and not in, in any sort of a fair way. But many lives he just consigns to hopelessness out of capricion, I would say. Not out of capricion. I mean, it's all calculated. It's all meant to lead to some end. But but yeah, that's sort of our perspective on this and how we yeah. split the, the difference here. Or if we were to word it differently. I remember, I remember go ahead. Simone said just recently, a, a day or two ago in the episode that I watched, that you really cannot judge who is elected or not right and so yeah so you if, if you're taking that you know to its full extent you're you basically need to interact with everyone you encounter as though they might be 
elect, right? 100%. Um, from the perspective you guys are taking here. And but this even means, though, that people that were like, oh my gosh, almost certainly they they are elect. They may not be, and not everyone will be. So that still means. And for us also, like, we don't have this concept of like a persistent soul. Like, we sort of see ourselves as part of an unbroken chain from all of our ancestors through all of our descendants. So if neither mimetically nor genetically, we've made any impact, you know, or, or logistically, we've made any impact as humans, meaning that we're not among the elect. There will be no, no conceivable version of us that gets to, you know, get the better roll of the dice, get the more enjoyable round, have God's grace, you know, enjoy the nice, the nice round. Whereas I think maybe the difference here is the Mormon view is that there is a persistent soul and this soul will get a good roll of the dice, like a good round at some point up ahead. Whereas like for us, it's more, I don't know. I don't think that this is exactly their perspective. No. Um, it's, 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 I think where our perspective differs from them is they actually believe everything you just said of what we believe, but we believe people meaningfully differentiate from other people when they branch from them genetically or mimetically. So if there is someone alive today who does not have any significant contribution to the mimetic future of humanity or the genetic future of humanity, they do literally die and never exist again. Whereas right. I don't think that's a perspective they have. No, yeah. Mormon, Mormonism is essentially pragmatically universalist. And I say it's essentially pragmatically so because there are exceptions to, to salvation in Mormonism, but they're the exceptions that don't wish salvation. They're people mm -hmm. who don't desire it. In mm -hmm. Mormon eschatology, everyone ultimately goes to the heaven that they desire. Mm. And, yeah, if you want it, you'll get it, or you'll get what you want. You'll get what you're working toward. Then if you're working possible, toward... It's possible to not desire any degree of glory whatsoever, in which case... Yeah. And we're called to participate in that work, and that's the salient point. The salient mm. point is not the passive, oh, God will take care of things. The salient point is God calls us all to create worlds without end in which we raise each other um, in the ways that we think are best if we can, but in their own way if we can't oh, in other words like in other words when god is calling things for things to happen or when god is doing things as we describe we're, we're describing things god is doing supposedly from your perspective mm -hmm. and from ours mm -hmm. um we would say that none of those actions can take place unless the agents of god are actually doing that work and that would be us mm -hmm. and so uh, because remember god according to mormonism god's God's purpose is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of humanity. And by definition in Mormonism, eternal life cannot be imposed against one's will and uh, no one can be forced towards it. And so essentially in order for God to achieve these purposes, we have to voluntarily choose to follow a certain pattern, a certain principle. Mm. When I also, I love how pluralistic that is. You've, I, I didn't understand this concept of sort of everyone gets the heaven they're working toward, the heaven they desire. There is no universally similar heaven for everyone. And that, you know, it's, it's going to be a very different experience for different people. I love how pluralistic that is. I've never really heard of anything like that before. I only really understand the LDS church, like culturally from having a lot of friends in it and like growing up in like a lot of the lifestyle, but not seeing any of the actual philosophy personally. So that is absolutely fascinating. And I love that. Like 
pluralism within an ideology within a religion is so cool yeah well, you some know, mormons underappreciate it even and will mischaracterize our theology and our eschatology to people outside of the church hmm. for example it's entirely true per mormon scripture that christians will go to a heaven that matches what they aspire to hmm. this the account of what we call the terrestrial heaven in mormon scripture is exactly what most Christians aspire to live in. And Mormon scripture says that they will go there and they will get that. And so many Mormons are too hesitant to fully point that out because Mormons are taught that there's a better heaven called the celestial heaven that mm. they should want for other reasons. And they end up making it a sticking point when it ought not to be a sticking point. What it should be is a description of, hey, here's what a terrestrial heaven entails mm -hmm. here's what a celestial heaven entails what do you want huh so it's almost like there's too much brand loyalty around one like yeah for heaven. Sure. you know and one other thing i would add to all this discussion of sort of pluralism is a great interesting person to read is emmanuel swedenborg i don't know if you guys have been exposed to any of his writings but he was no. highly influential to subsequent thinkers he he was I think he died sometime in the 1600s, but his he wrote very detailed views of heaven and he essentially took Paul's metaphor of the body of Christ to extreme literal degrees and described heaven as that if you were to zoom out on heaven, you would see a perfect human, essentially. Oh, oh and, interesting. And what he said was that different members of this body of this massive infinite test like infinite community of of exalted beings or whatever that they gravitated towards the parts of the body that they found most affinity with and that the affinity oh. that they held had nothing to do with their earthly kin uh -huh. so he he claimed that like people would gravitate towards the to the communities that really resonated with them and that there were even some members of these communities who, whose preference was not to be a part of a single community, but to be a communicator between communities. Right. Like you're like a total red blood cell kind of soul. So well, yeah, exactly. here's a question I have, because I actually don't know if this is an area of differentiation, is one core differentiation seems to be the the level of distinction you believe that the exalted beings, which are represented as God, have from each other whereas we believe much more that god is an emergent property of the communication of these exalted beings but is very much just one single entity yeah so to respond to that point i think that probably where maybe we differ a little bit is that i see godliness manifest at many different levels of emergence and not just at one if that mm. makes sense so i see godliness manifested in my neighbor I see the image of Christ in my neighbor, but I also see the image of Christ in a community of beings working together harmoniously and maybe even in the entire world, right? And so I don't, I don't confine my view of, of transcendence to one emergent level, if that makes sense. Hmm. So it's more like distributed divinity rather than there being some kind of entity that's formalized well, kind of like how things echo right like if you look at the way spiral galaxies 
you know, are mirrored in a toilet flush. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like we have mm. these properties in the universe that repeat themselves. So, like Fibonacci divinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That, yeah in Mormon exactly. theology, God is both one and many. In fact, there's mm. a passage of scripture, the 93rd section of the Doctrine and Covenants from Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, where mm -hmm. he says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, which is the time that we now live in, that whether there is one God or many gods, all will be manifest. And of course, what he's getting at, which he talks about in other discourses he gave, was that there are ways of thinking about God as being just one. And there are ways about thinking of God as being many, and that they're, they're both... Um, true there's both true there you can approach god from e either perspective in fact the book of mormon emphasizes over and over more strongly than the bible that god the father god the son and the holy ghost are one eternal god it's like trinitarianism on steroids and yet mormons will insist that we're not trinitarians for good reason because oh. that's just one account of our theology there's a lot more to it mm. and then in another book of mormon scripture the book of abraham Joseph Smith describes the creation and in the creation, it's the gods, plural, who create the heavens and the earth and mm. go through the various stages of creation that we know of from the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. So there's many accounts of theology and oneness or manyness of God in Mormon. Scripture. You know, in fact, Lincoln gave a really good talk on this, these multivalent manifestations of God in our last conference. And so if you guys, I can share you the link of that, but it would be interesting if you want to explore more sort of this concept of like different ways that God may emerge and, and be manifest. Interesting. Oh, so a question I had for you guys is as Mormon transhumanists, do you believe that Christians get Christian heaven, like non-Mormon Christians get Christian heaven? And what do you think is the mechanism there? Do you think it's an emulation of some sort? Do you think it's like, how does that work within the transhumanist framework? Whereas we just think people who aren't following or are not on the path of the elect get no meaningful reward. And even the elect get no meaningful reward other than their own efficacy. Yeah, um, in Mormon theology, everyone's elect. Everyone's elect and everyone has potential and possibility. Everyone has potential to become God. But not everybody will want to because that entails a lot of hard things that it's not a simplistic notion of God. And so, yes, most most Mormons who understand our theology will say, yes, Christians will get the heaven that they're aspiring to. And the mechanism is that they will make that heaven through their actions. That, that's, their relationship. that's what I was going to say, like that. It's just important not to think of this as some sort of like final destination that you're plopped into, but that it's more like. You know, Brigham Young actually said something really profound when he said, essentially, like, a lot of people ask me all the time, like, reveal to me the mysteries of the gods and where think people end up and what the heavens look like. And he says, allow me to inform you that you are in the midst of it all now, that you are in as great a kingdom as you will ever, ever inherit unless you make it yourselves and that you cannot even appreciate a kingdom that you have not labored to make yourselves. Right. So essentially, if we were to be zapped into heaven without the operating manual of heaven, it would it would be a hell to us, essentially. So we very soon, at least. Yeah, hmm. pretty soon things would break down and we wouldn't know how to fix them. Right. So the point is that we can only inherit the kind of glory that we have, like, personally and collectively labored to to create and establish.
collective being key here. Heaven is more than just an individual thing in Mormonism. It's definitely a community thing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, Mormonism is really interesting because it has this weird combination of like fierce independence with communalism, right? Right. Where it's like Mormons, for example, during the Great Depression, Mormons had a really strong welfare program. and Within the church. Within the church, right? But it was because the church was so strong along the Wasatch Front, it was practically the community. Whether, whether you were an active member of the church or not, you were getting sustenance from this program right hmm. and when you know, even during like the depression when some research was done into how to deal with some of the challenges that various communities were experiencing some observers were sent from washington to utah to try to understand what they're doing well and yet there was also a lot of suspicion about government welfare programs that were being implemented later on precisely because they didn't want competition. Like the Utahns, the Mormons in Utah wanted to said, it's working for us. Just let us do what we're doing, you know? And so I think there was some natural suspicion around something that would be administered by a governing body that did not also have all the other trappings that and strengths of Mormonism, right? Whether that suspicion was warranted or not is another question, but it's an interesting historical anecdote, right? To, to see that, that combination yeah. of self-reliance, independence, and communalism at the same time, right? That is, I, I love that. There, There's so many things about the LDS church that are just like, I mean, well, and also it, 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 it shows that a lot of the things that the church and the, the broader lifestyle and culture have tried and done really work because there aren't very many, like we'll say new versions of Christianity that have done well. <laughs> and, you know, sort of been relatively new. I mean, I, the LDS church is the only one that I know of like post. Oh, the Millerists, they split into a number of movements that still exist today, but. Millerists, I've never heard of them. And so, so Jehovah's Witnesses are probably the biggest branch, but mm. so are the. Stay Adventists, I think are doing. Seventh Day Adventists. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting though. Like I think for every religion that succeeds, there's probably hundreds that fail. Right. So yeah, it's, it's rarer to see the emergence of a new world religion that that has traction, right? Well, and that is influential. I've never met a Seventh-day Adventist. I've never met a Jehovah's Witness. And yet, like all my friends in college were Mormon. I went to a Mormon preschool. I've met many right. Mormons just randomly. Like, Yeah, that is interesting. I'd say one thing that's different between those three groups that we just mentioned is that Mormons are strongly encouraged to like be out among the world and be... Mm -hmm involved and we're not, also not anti-tech and we're not mm -hmm. like cloistered that much right so mm -hmm. so i think that did you live in the western united states yeah That's in california lots of mormons in the western united states. except, except I, I, when i went to school and all my friends were mormon i was in dc yeah so well lots of mormons in dc yeah. yeah, there are. Anyway, this has been fantastic. Yes, I thank you really so much for joining. You the time to talk with us. I really do want to have you on again if you end up starting this organization so we can help you get yeah. members because I think it would have a lot of overlap with the things that we do. And I think it is very interesting the huge amount of overlap in our belief systems, which better helps me understand when I talk to Mormons that like your belief systems are very, very Mormon. In fact, the one thing that we, we often say like distinctly, I know for a fact, this is something that I disagree with Mormons on is we disagree with the idea of a central church. And I was like, but you know, you guys also said that you thought that it might be better to have 
unique local central churches. So even there, we have a lot of similarities. So it's been great to have you on and have a spectacular Christmas. Yes. Thank you. Merry Christmas to both of you. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. I love these discussions and we need a round two for compassion versus like austerity in uh, divinity, right? So whenever you guys are ready, let's do it again. (laughs) Have a good one. Okay. Thanks, guys. Just like we said, there is a creator. No. Yep. You said it was some all-powerful dude living in the clouds. Our creator's nothing like that. It's still a creator. It's fucking Kevin. He was doing the Lord's work. He was doing his senior project. Eh, semantics. Okay, you know what? Hey, Kevin. Hey, just had some questions. Um, first, I'm actually just curious. How long did this take you? Okay, well, don't tell my mom, but I kind of procrastinated on the thing. Uh, we had the full year to work on it, but I waited until... Probably the last week, worked for like six days straight, got it done, and then I rested for like a full day after that. Are you fucking kidding me? Okay, was this like a team project or? Nope, just me, one programmer. Okay, how does this program work? Well, first it calls a function, I just called it let there be light. Then you know how in iRobot, the robots must obey the three laws? Yeah. Well, this program has laws it has to follow, too. Uh, The first four are the fundamental forces, and then there are actually six natural laws of human nature. So, ten in total. Yep. And the program must obey these laws, or else it just falls apart. So, you might say they're like the commandments of the program. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what they are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, actually. What language is this written in? C. Wow. Actually involves some others, but what's nice about this language is that it highlights any individual mistakes in red. So when I was debugging, all I had to do was part the red C code from the rest and then see what the issues were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then all the bugs were swept away and the good code was you know, free to be executed. Okay. So was there like a flood that covered the entire earth and a dude who built an ark and put a bunch of animals on it? That was in another file. Doesn't count. Totally counts. Doesn't count. Different files. That's like, wait, different folders? Yep, different folders. Different folders. That's like a different universe. Bible never says it all happened in this universe. You make people crazy. Yeah, my computer, I have one column of final design folders that I actually sent to my teacher. And then I have another column of just like junk folders for fun stuff. Are you trying to say it happened in a parallel universe? No, I'm just saying different folders. Okay, what happens after you die? You're removed from the active program, but all your info is still stored on an external hard drive. Wipe that smirk. Uh, You know what? No. You said you were going to go to heaven, like above the clouds or whatever. Not a hard drive sitting on some dude's desk. So after that, I knew I needed another method of storing these files. So I started backing up the hard drive to the The cloud. cloud. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But I'm very impressed. Uh, What'd you get on the project? B minus. Wow, strict teacher. Yeah, for real. But I'm thankful for what I got. Oh, and speaking of that, one sec. Dear Lord, I just want to say thank you for guiding me through this project. Uh, I managed to get a B minus, which is passing. Wait, are you praying? Yeah. To who? God. You have a God? Duh. You think we just came from nothing? I don't know. Maybe you're part of a simulation. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Wait, how do you know you guys have a God? He talks back to us. Hey, Kevin, just want to say good job on the senior project. Thanks. You know, I worked really hard on it. I know you did, but maybe don't procrastinate as much next time. Yeah, definitely. Okay, wait. 
Who is your god? You want to see? Yeah. Hey, sending up one of my characters too now. You can do that. And no idea what's going on. Super confused. Super confused. Weirdest shit in my life. And well, nice place. So what? Are you fucking kidding me? Hi there. So what does this mean? Like the Mormons got it right? <laughs>